0: Everyone else, as you have your scriptures, please turn to Matthew chapter 20. We've been going through Matthew's gospel for some time now. We're reaching a a turning point in Matthew's gospel. The story after this one, the the chapter after this is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, beginning Matthew's extended account of the last week of Jesus' life. But before we get into that, we're going to pause. And starting next week, during the summer, we're going to do a short series on Elisha. And witness in the in the life of just one of the prophets, the power of God to restore His people. That power to restore that was on the minds and in the hearts of every one of God's people as the Messiah entered Jerusalem. But This week we look at Matthew chapter 20. I'll be reading verses 17 through 34. The final moments leading up to that entrance into Jerusalem. Hear now the word of the Lord. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father." as they went out to Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, most of you know I spent a number of years overseas in East Asia, where the food palette was quite different. And where I lived in particular, there was not as much of a cultural appreciation for sweet food. Which I missed, and I still remember, after after being there for years, when Dunkin' Donuts opened its first shop, and my American friends and I, we went and stood in line for hours, hours, to get to Dunkin' Donuts, and we we walked in off the street into that store, and we. Smelled the smells, and we saw the sights, and the color scheme was even the same, and there's the donuts on display. And and I remember my friend Elizabeth, she walked right up to the to the display and she saw the donut she wanted. It was a plain donut covered, covered with large crystals of white sugar. Just that, one, that one. And they served it to her. And we all we all ordered our your donuts and we The eight of us crowded around this table meant for just three or four people. Just enjoying it, anticipating. And Elizabeth took her donut and she took a big bite into that sugary sweetness. Her face clenched up and she spit it on the floor and grabbed my water. It's salt! It's salt! It's a lie! They didn't do sweet donuts. They did salty donuts. They did... Green tea donuts. They did pork floss donuts. She thought she knew what she wanted. She asked for what she wanted, but found out it was the wrong thing. Sometimes we think we know what we're asking for, but we're wrong. And what we see in this passage is a contrast between asking for what it is we want and asking for what we need. And we see that God in His mercy, doesn't give us what we think is good and right, but instead is merciful to us to give us what it is that we need. Because we may think we're looking at a nice, sugary, sweet dessert, but God knows what it's really made of. and He has something better in mind for us. So whether we seek His mercy or whether we ask for something else, God gives us what it is that we truly, deeply need. We need the mercy of God. And so, as we see in these passages, in order to ask for the right things from God, we have to reject our ambition. We have to recognize our need and we have to then receive God's mercy. The first thing we see is the call to reject our ambition. Sometimes the gospel writers like Matthew, they'll group stories together, not necessarily because things happened in that order. But because they all address the same idea, they're related in what they talk about. And if you've been tracking with us for a couple months now, going back to Matthew 18, you've probably noticed this theme again and again of greatness and humility. Uh, Beginning with the disciples arguing over which one of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Even up to what we saw last week, the parable about how the first will be last and the last will be first. You see, what's happening is that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We're about to have the triumphal entry. And and as he's going into Jerusalem, the expectation of his followers and all those who are with him is, this is it. The time has come. The the Messiah, the King, the Son of David, is going to to enter Jerusalem, the capital, the, the, the home of the temple of God, where David had his throne room. And he's gonna go in, he's gonna use that power, the power that fed multitudes, the power that, that calmed the oceans, the power that cast out demons, the power that healed the sick. He's gonna use that power to, to, to throw out our Roman oppressors and, and the false leaders. And he's going to establish his kingdom. And if you're one of Jesus' close associates or the mother of one of his close associates, you wanna make sure you've got all your ducks in a row, that you've got your seats. Next to the king. Because once Jesus is made king, there'll be no shortage of Johnny-come-latelys who, who want their spot. he like, say, oh, now that Jesus is popular, I'm going to side with him. But we, the disciples, we are the ones who have walked the long road with him. We are the ones who have suffered and been persecuted in his name. We deserve a place next to him because they are still thinking of the kingdom of God, as if it's just like any other earthly nation or kingdom. And in this case, it's not one of the disciples who comes to Jesus. It's the mother of two of them, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who, who to be honest, James and John, are, are they're in the inner circle. They're two of the three closest associates that Jesus has. You know, when he went up the Mount of Transfiguration, he took James, John, and Peter. When he went into the private room to, to raise a young girl from the dead, He took Peter, James, and John. These are two of his closest guys. And so in verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee comes up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now, other people had come to Jesus on their knees asking for something. Usually, it was a healing, a miracle, a deliverance, a rescue. In this case, in verse 21, he says, what do you want? And she says, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left. In your kingdom. Sitting at the right and the left hand of the king was not necessarily a physical thing, though at times it was. It was primarily a, a political thing. Your right hand and your left hand man. These were the people who would speak on your behalf. They, they were your sec, your first and second in command. They, were, they had the power that you had, second only to you. This woman's statement is a declaration of her faith that Jesus would be king. She says, now is the time. You're going into Jerusalem when you are king. I want to make sure that my boys are in the place that they deserve, that they are getting the honor that they are due. What Jesus does is he points out the misunderstanding that she has about the nature of the kingdom he brings. In verse 22, he says, you don't know what you're asking. And then he looks to James and John and says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? What's the cup that he's talking about? Now, in James and John's mind, it could have been the the cup of blessing. My cup runneth over. The cup that the king has, that he, he passes his cup of blessing to those around him. No, the cup that Jesus is talking about here is a different cup. The one he mentions in Matthew 26, the night he is arrested, he says, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will." but as you will. In the Old Testament, many places, the cup is used to speak of God's wrath and punishment. Just one example would be Isaiah 51. The prophet speaks to you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. That's what Jesus is facing. The wrath and the judgments and the punishment of God. That's the cup that He is going to drink to the dregs so that we might not have to. So just before this account, in verses 18 and 19, Matthew reminds us that Jesus said that the Son of Man would be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. That's the cup. Jesus asks James and John, are you ready for that? But they're still hearing the cup of blessing. The cup of power cup of the kingdom, not the cup of wrath. So they say, verse 22, yeah, we're able. We're ready for this, Jesus. Let's go. Let's get this kingdom. And Jesus actually doesn't deny that that they will drink it. They will eventually suffer and die for him, he says in verse 23. You will drink my cup, but To sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Yes, they will suffer and eventually die for Jesus, but that does not earn them a privilege or a place at all. Just as we saw last week in the parable of the landowner who called people to work in his field at different hours through the day, and those who worked 12 hours under the blistering sun got paid the same wage as those who only worked one hour at the end of the day. And the point we saw there was that rewards and blessings are gifts. They're not things we earn or deserve or can claim by right from God. And when the other ten disciples hear about this, it creates some bitterness among them. Not because the other ten are thinking, how could you guys? Didn't you hear what he said? First will be last, last will be first. Humble yourself like a child or you won't enter the kingdom. That wasn't why they were upset. The other 10 were upset, most likely, because, see, I wish I'd thought of that. i my mom to come and speak on my behalf and see if I could get dibs, you know, call shotgun at the throne room of God. So Jesus has to, again, remind his disciples that his kingdom doesn't work the way the kingdoms of the world work. It's not what you think. So in verse 25, he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, and that word Gentiles is the exact same Greek word as nations. The rulers of the nations of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. Their rulers lord over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. To be clear, Jesus isn't saying that authority in itself is a bad thing. Jesus establishes authority. Scripture calls for authority and leadership. What he's condemning is a worldly view of authority where being a leader means that you're better than someone else. Where the little people serve the important people. Where being in a position of power and influence and privilege puts you above the crowd. That is the world's way of leading. That is unholy ambition. Ambition itself is not bad. The, the desire, the drive to work hard, to excel, to do a good job, to have a vision for something and achieve that vision, excellent things, good, godly, God-given, spirit-empowered things. But there is an unholy ambition that finds worth in achievement and position and seeks to pursue position and advancement and power. To be better than other people. That is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The desire and the drive to be better than others. To be over others. The hunger for recognition and for praise. That does not flow from the gospel. Let's look instead at what the gospel produces. I reminded you that the story takes place just before Jesus enters Jerusalem for his final week. Near the end of that week, there's a story recorded in John where Jesus, eating with His disciples, rolls up His sleeves, fetches a basin of water, and then does the job of the lowest, most menial servant. He washes the feet of His disciples. And when He's done that, He says in John 13, verse 13-15, through He says to His disciples, You call Me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am, if then... I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. In other words, if Jesus is up here, even if you think that you are going to be right here, he said, the guys up here are washing feet, so don't think you're above that. Don't try to excel above what your Lord has done. It's the same thing he's telling them later here in Matthew 20. He says that he did not come to be served. He came to serve. And if we wish to follow him, and if we wish to be honored in his kingdom, we have to do the same. But I haven't given you the gospel yet in that command. I've told you to reject ambition, but the gospel is what makes it possible to reject ambition. What really sticks with me in the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, as amazing as the story itself is, what's always stuck with me is how John gets behind the story and explains what motivates and empowers Jesus to wash his disciples' feet. What's Jesus' mindset as he's doing this? Earlier in the chapter, John 13, beginning in verse 3, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What fueled his service? What was going on in Jesus' mind as he's washing his disciples' feet? Verse 3, Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. And that he'd come from God and was going back to God. Jesus was secure in who he was in the Father. He knew he was loved. He knew he was provided for. He knew he was accepted. He knew that God lovingly ruled all things. He knew where he was headed. For you who are in Christ, the same assurance holds. You are loved. You are provided for. You are accepted God lovingly rules all things. You don't need to be lifted up over other people to be accepted. You don't need to be in control and to have power to be secure. The gospel of Jesus doesn't just call you to be a servant. The gospel removes the fears and insecurities and illusions about pride that make it impossible to be a servant. The gospel removes those things. And instead, reminds you that you are secure in the love of God. And nothing shows that more clearly than that God would send his own son to die in your place. If he would do that, will he not provide all that you need? You don't need to claw your way to the top of any ladder. The ambitious person, the one who seeks praise in all of its forms, whether it's likes on Facebook or uh, verbal affirmation, compliments on your looks. The one who seeks praise or position or power, the ambitious person is weakened and is enslaved to the opinions and to the acceptance of others. But the one who knows that Christ has died and Christ has risen for her is no longer a slave to those things, but is freed. is freed from the slavery of ambition. So to, in order to ask for what you really want from God, you have to first reject your ambition. Let's look quickly and briefly at the next story, which seems to have nothing to do with the first story, I would say. On the surface, we have this, these James and John asking to be seated at his right and left hand, and then we have, oh, by the way, Jesus healed some blind guys on the way into Jerusalem just in case you were wondering what he did on the road. But but actually, let's look at this. In both stories, we have two men asking Jesus for something. In both stories, they connect their request to Jesus being king. Jesus, when you you are king, let, let let my son sit on your right and left hand. Jesus, son of David, the king, have mercy on us. In the first story, they ask Jesus to fulfill their desires and their ambitions. In the second story, they're simply asking him to fulfill their need in the first story we sense that they feel entitled they deserve what they are asking for in the second story they're asking only for mercy is it a coincidence that these stories are paired together in matthew's gospel i don't think it is the first story teaches us to reject our ambition the second story teaches us to recognize our need let's take a quick look at that after telling his disciples that he came not to be served, but to serve. They continue on the road, and then verse 30, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Having just dealt with two of his disciples, and indeed all of them had the same problem, who were blind to what really mattered in God's kingdom, he now encounters two men who are literally blind. This happens maybe more often than you think in the Gospels. There's a story about someone who is expressing some sort of spiritual blindness, failing to understand who Jesus is, followed by an account of Jesus healing a blind man. Why would that be the case so often? It's because just as the blind person cannot see unless they are healed, our spiritual sickness... Our spiritual blindness is not something that will fix itself over time. It's not something that we can solve by getting a good book recommendation, even if we read the book. It's not something that will solve, be solved by good advice from a friend or a good detox, a cleanse, and a little time off from social media. None of that is going to solve our spiritual blindness. Our condition is more serious than that. Really, the difference between us and the men by the road is that they at least knew what they needed. They recognized their need. And they're crying out for help. Verse 31, we see the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. Isn't that typical of the crowd? Do we appreciate people announcing their weakness and being vocal about their needs, or do we try to keep it quiet? And maintain within our home, our marriage, our Bible study, our circle of friends, maintain the illusion that things are okay or better than okay. Things are great. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. We don't appreciate being reminded of our weakness and our need. There's a movie that came out a while ago, The Greatest Showman, a fictionalized account, very fictionalized account of of P.T. Barnum starting his his famous Barnum and Bailey Circus, and uh, you know he's through the story he's gathering these oddities, these people that that are outsiders and strangers and have uh, you know weird, unusual things about them. You know whether they're really tall or Siamese twins or body covered head to toe in tattoos or the bearded lady or the wolf boy and all these strange people. And there's a there's a scene where um, you know he's developed them to be kind of like a family and to find acceptance among themselves. And, and Barnum is having a, a social with some of the upper class of society that he's, he's trying to woo his way into. And uh, when his, his friends from the circus show up, he stops them at the door and says, no, 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 no. We don't come in here. And it's a musical, so they respond in song. As they walk away, uh, the bearded lady who has a beautiful voice, she begins singing, I'm not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say. We don't want your broken parts. That's what the crowd does. The crowd says, hide away. We don't want your broken parts. Be quiet. Be quiet. But Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus draws near not to pride, not to illusions of having it all together. Jesus draws near to the broken. Psalm 34 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted." And He saves the crushed in spirit. Believing the Gospel and following Jesus is not about pretending that you're perfect or ignoring your wounds and your weaknesses. Just like the blind men on the street, we are to cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me! Whereas those men cried out in desperation, not sure if they would get what they asked for. We cry out in expectation, knowing the character of our Lord knowing that He heals and blesses and strengthens. So do not hide or ignore your need. Recognize your need and bring it to the Lord. See what He does in verse 32. Stopping, Jesus called them and said, and what do you want me to do for you? Now remember, He's fresh off of James and John, asking them with the exact same words, what do you want? Okay, you've told me what you want, now what do you want me to do for you? And they said in verse 33, Lord, let our eyes be opened. It's as simple as recognizing the need that you have and bringing it to Jesus. Did Jesus know they were blind? It was pretty obvious. Jesus wasn't asking because He needed to know. He needed them to acknowledge their need. Just as we do when we confess our sin and worship. We're acknowledging our need of a Savior. Lord, I need to stop feeling anxious and fearful all the time. Lord, I'm always angry and can't control what I say. Lord, my spending is out of control. If the church was a place for people who had it all together, I wouldn't be here and neither should you. We don't have illusions about that. We all are needy people. We don't hide it. We recognize it. And we bring it to the Lord. And as we do that, what type of people does that make us? When we recognize how needy we are, how there's no way we can look down on others at that point. We have no position from which to look down at others. We instead become not only humble, but filled with grace. When we recognize our need and bring it to Jesus, what do we expect of Him? Do we expect judgment? Do we expect condemnation? Some of us, because of our family upbringings or our personality or difficult life experiences, whatever it is, we, we have this mental image of God or Jesus uh, hearing our prayers and, and it's like, really? Still with this? You haven't gotten over this yet? You don't have enough faith for that yet? Or maybe your image is more of a disinterested like, what, what, huh? What? Go fix it yourself. How dare you? How dare you still struggle with that after all I've done for you? What is your image of God's attitude towards you when you recognize your need and bring it to Him? Verse 34. Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed Him. We reject our ambition. We recognize our need. And thirdly, we receive God's mercy. Matthew says in pity there. In pity, Jesus touched their eyes. That's not how I would have translated it. And I don't don't often get into translations in the Greek. But I have to say the word here for pity in Greek is probably, in my mind, one of the most beautiful words in ancient Greek. It's the word splanknithes. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Splanknithes. Which comes from the Greek word splankness, which is your guts, your innards, your intestines. Because the Greeks understood where we feel real compassion. Not the heart. You feel it here in your gut. When you get that phone call, and you know the phone call I'm talking about, from that loved one who was waiting for a report from the doctor, and you can hear the tone of their voice before they say a word, where do you feel it? You feel it in your splankness. The word is compassion. When we say pity, you might be thinking pity as in looking down on someone, a pity that belittles the one who suffers. But splankthase, splanknethase, it gets in there, it's in the problem. It feels the hurt that you're feeling, it shares it, it's an empathy. You need to understand that this is how Jesus feels towards you. This is how he feels when you are sick, when you are wounded, when you are struggling. This is God's attitude towards you when you fight addiction, when you are depressed, when you are enamored by money or possessions, when you doubt, when you fear, when you live anything less than the abundant life that God has given you. He doesn't roll his eyes and huff with annoyance. Again, he feels a deep, powerful, active compassion. But the feelings of God are not just feelings, my friends. God does not feel one way, but act another. The way we might see someone in trouble and feel sorry for them. And then as soon as the light's green, we move on and forget about it. The the feelings of God are hand in hand with His action. And as surely as God feels merciful compassion towards you, He acts in love to the objects of His compassion. That's what ties this whole series of stories together. Going back to the beginning of the passage in verse uh, 18 and 19, Jesus told His disciples that He was going to Jerusalem to be delivered over and they would condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and that He would be raised on the third day. By itself, that's a neat prediction. By itself, sure, Jesus knows what's going to happen. And not only that, He's going to rise from the dead. That's great. But let's be clear, the fact that Jesus died and rose again is not important without the reason that Jesus died and rose again. I want you to hear that. The fact that Jesus died and rose again is only important because of the reason that Jesus died and rose again. If all we knew was that a man named Jesus was killed by crucifixion, and then rose again on the third day, it would be pretty cool. And mostly irrelevant to us. The reason that He died and rose again makes it not just a historical curiosity, but it makes it the most important historical fact in the entire history of historical facts. We see this in verse 28. The little phrase I skipped over earlier. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not just die and rise again. Jesus died and rose again for you. My friends, don't ever lose sight of that. Amazing grace, amazing love. And can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? It is for you. Jesus did not have His life taken from Him He gave His life as a ransom. And it was not to set an example. It was not in political protest. It was not an unfortunate circumstance. Jesus gave His life as a ransom. A ransom is a payment. A payment that you give to buy back something that's been taken, something that's lost. You, you were lost. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, what sin is owed is death. The wages of that ransom that need to be paid is death. And so Jesus gives His life in payment of those wages. He ransomed you. And here's the best part. Unlike the blind men in this story, who had to cry out and ask for mercy before they received it, Jesus gave His life as a ransom before you asked for it, before you were aware you needed it, before you had done anything. Mercy caught you when you were running the opposite direction. As ones who have received such mercy, how should we then live? Simply put, those who receive mercy give mercy. Those whose deepest needs are met are then free to meet the needs of others. Those whose needs have been met without their earning it or even asking for it are free from the rat race of chasing self-worth, the rat race of chasing self-promotion, of chasing self-interest, of needing to devote all your time and energy to making sure I'm okay. That's the Gospel. It says you, that's covered. You're okay. You are accepted. You are loved. You are secure. You are provided for. You don't need to chase it. You don't need to pursue it. You don't need to position yourself to be safe. You have it. And then the God who supplies all your needs did not just do so once in the past, but continues to promise that you will receive out of the riches of His mercy abundant life, all that you need. So as our own poets have said, you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, just might find you get what you need. We want things that will do us no good. We want because we don't know any better. We want because it, it sure looks like a yummy sweet donut on the shelf. But its taste is bitter. And it leaves us hungry. What we get is what we need. We get the mercy of God. A friend for sinners. A strength in weakness, a help in sorrow. Hallelujah, the song says. What a Savior. Hallelujah. What a friend. Brothers and sisters, to ask rightly of God, you have to reject your ambition to pursue the things that will not satisfy. You have to recognize the need that you do have, the deep abiding need. And upon recognizing it, you may receive the mercy of God which He has already freely given to you in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let us receive His mercy and rejoice. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your unending mercy to us. That You did not wait for us to draw near to You, but instead reached out to us. You did not wait for us to call out, but instead let us hear Your voice. We are thankful for all You have done Thank you that though our hearts wander in many different directions in pursuit of many other things that will never satisfy, your mercy pursues us. You will be with us until the end. We thank you for this in the name of our Savior.